Hi there, I'm Janice Koh, and thanks for joining me today. I'll be reading excerpts from Dora Tan's Seven Views of Red Hill and just talking about the parts of the book that I like and remind me of my own life. So here we go. When people think of Red Hill, they think of the romantic legend of the boy who saved his kampong from the swordfish. They think of this boy who was killed by the jealous king and of his blood which subsequently stained the hill. <laughs> I live in Red Hill for 24 years and I never heard that legend. Red Hill for me has never been romantic. When we first moved in, I was 21 years and already had two sons. Many of the residents, young families like us, moved in about the same time. Many of them also come from slums and we continued the same kampong closeness. Our doors were always open and everyone knew everyone. Many of the women were housewives and we would gather at Haiso's place to play seasick in the afternoon after our work was done. So I just read a little bit from Ma's view and I wasn't born at the time that she's talking about, which is around the 50s and 60s, where many families were moving from kampongs into new SIT housing estates. I was born in the 70s in Tanglin Halt and I grew up in a three-room HDB flat in Marine Terrace. But certainly growing up in the 70s, I am very familiar with the sense of economic hardship that Ma would be going through at that time and the struggle shared by many Singaporean families and also the frugality that many families had because they were working towards, you know, bettering their financial circumstances. It was a time that is very unlike the Singapore that we know today, where we have a growing affluent middle class, where home ownership is high and households are much smaller, and where dual income families aspire to live in private condominiums. The Singapore I grew up in, in the 70s, was economically much poorer. And I remember my grandmother telling me about, you know, our neighbours' children having to eat only plain rice with soy sauce and crackers for lunch every day because they couldn't afford very much. Although, I secretly suspect that she tells me that story because I was a very fussy eater as a child. And she would, you know, tell me that um, as a threat, uh, just to get me to finish up, finish up my food. But I think basically, this was an era where most of the households I knew had three or more children. If you, if you recall, it was a time where government was trying to get families to stop at two. And it was a time where intergenerational living was the norm. And it was very rare to have domestic help at home. So the idea of, say, fostering out your children on weekdays um, to other families to care for them was actually um, pretty common in my time. I'm going to read a little bit um, from Kim Hui's view, one of the daughters of Ma, who was also fostered out. 
Red Hill for me is divided into two periods, the time I was fostered out and the time after I came home. I was fostered out when I was three, because by then Ma already had six children and my eldest brother, Ping, was just 13. My foster parents lived a few blocks away, closer to the market. They were poorer than us and had to take in foster kids to supplement their income. We hardly hear of children being fostered out for care these days. But both my younger siblings were fostered out on weekdays because my parents were both working and my grandmother was not able to care for so many young kids at home on her own. So, you know, it's such a rare thing to think about now because, you know, it was not even an option when I had kids of my own. But at that time, my brother and sister, they would get dropped off early in the morning at their foster families' homes. And then after work each day, my mother would go pick them up and bring them home for dinner. And I have heard my mother say that she regretted doing this, you know, fostering out her kids back then because my, my sister and I used to fight quite a lot as children and she used to think it's because we never spent enough time growing up together. I guess to her, that was the cost. The cost of having you know, both parents going out to work. When I think back on those years, I would say that my childhood was quite similar to Kim Hui's and, you know, some of the descriptions that you will read in this book. I spent a lot of time with uh, my cousins, especially on weekends, running up and down, you know, corridors and stairs, playing badminton in the car park lot, playing hide-and-seek in the entire estate without much adult supervision. We had a lot of free time. You could say that it was kind of like parenting by neglect, but I say it was really great for play and invention. Unlike, um, I think, Singapore children, these days I feel that at that time, we spent a lot of time outdoors in public playgrounds, you know, picnicking um, with the family at Changi or East Coast Beach, fishing overnight at Badok Jetty, swimming in the sea, catching worms for the fishing. And, and there was no sense of me or my friends or my relatives, you know, the kids that I grew up with, ever, ever needing to go for enrichment classes. At the very most, maybe like having piano at home, but really it was kind of unheard of. And tuition was really only for those who were desperately failing their subjects. When I compare my growing up years to what I see today, I sometimes wonder if we have become poorer, not richer. And honestly, I don't want to over-romanticize the past because there was certainly a drive to improve our economic circumstances. So I, I do get it, you know, there was a real need for, 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 getting, for having to get a scholarship to study overseas, to get out of these tiny, crowded flats. All that is real, all that resonates with me. But yet, in a, in a very strange and intangible way, I do feel that we were so much richer back then in terms of how we spent our leisure time. We didn't have to compete with smartphones and laptops for each other's attention. And even though 
We couldn't afford to take a plane for an overseas vacation. We could afford to own a car. And we used to drive up to Malaysia during the school holidays. I'm just going to read the last bit um, from Zhu Peng, the eldest child in the family in the story Seven Views of Red Hill. I was able to study in UK through a scholarship. I remember the day I received the letter congratulating me for being the recipient of Singapore's Colombo Plan Scholarship. I spent the next two months racing around, preparing for the trip. I should have spent those two months just hanging around Red Hill. I should have played football in the common corridor one last time. Ate the tok tok me one last time. Said goodbye to my friends, who were all gone when I came back. We had already moved when I came back from UK. But I went back to Red Hill just to take a look. Huh. All the blocks looked the same, except for the ridiculous new facade. But I felt something was different. So, back in 2019, I actually did a performance of Seven Views of Red Hill um, with Lim Yubeng as my co-actor at the Arts House. And it was under this program called Page to Stage. We worked with writer-director Lee Tian Jean and we adapted Dora Tan's short story for the stage. In preparation for the role, I decided that it would be interesting to go back and visit some of these blocks that is in itself quite a character in Dora Tan's story. These SIT blocks at Red Hill, and I thought um, I wanted to see them, I wanted to sense them, and I called you being to come along with me. And, you know, as described in the story, all the blocks have been emptied out, all the staircases have been locked up um, so that no one could go upstairs, and you could see possession notices pasted on every door. URA was preparing to redevelop the land for other users, and most of the families had already moved out or they had relocated to new flats in Henderson. And I remember um, finding one gate in one of the blocks that was unlocked. And I thought, oh, great, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to sneak upstairs and see what it feels like to, to, to see what these corridors that are described in the story, what they are like. So I, I grabbed Yubing and I said, let's go. And funnily enough, it was him who was not so keen and a little bit hesitant because he thought it was creepy. <laughs> Which is quite funny because if you know Yubing, you know he's like Mr. Tough Guy, Mr. Macho. And when, and when um, we were climbing the stairs, which were quite dark and quite dank, um, up up, you know, to the sixth, seventh story, you could tell that he was like a little bit creeped out. Um, so we, 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 we had backpacks on our back and we stuck quite close together um, and, you know, explored these silent stairwells and empty corridors that were leaf-strewn and um, where there was nothing left.
In fact, um, one of the flats actually had their main door left accidentally ajar, so we could actually peek into one of the flats, these three-room flats, with the paint peeling off the walls, um, dusty, green marble on the floor, empty of everything except memories. We were tempted to go in, but I was a little bit scared of coming coming face to face with something I didn't want to f- want, want to meet. So we decided not to open, not to not to step into the flat. Um, the whole experience um, actually left me quite quite sad. Uh, I think it was because you know we knew that all these homes and flats and rooms contain so much memories and stories of the people who used to live there and um, they were all gone now. You know, each night after the show um, and after we performed it, audiences would sometimes spontaneously come up to us because they felt like a real need to share their own memories of Red Hill or of their childhood years growing up in Singapore in the 60s. and in the 50s as well. And I realised that many of those memories are tied to physical buildings and spaces that no longer exist today. Which to me is... Oh, I don't know. Every time I I hear stories by people who talk about spaces that no longer are around, there is a sense of like, oh, dread. Because I sometimes forget how how quickly our landscape, our physical landscape and our city changes. It's something which doesn't happen overseas as much because, you know, clearly we live in an island city, we are land scarce and it has to happen here. But I have lived abroad a few years in the States and in England and whenever I go back, the places that I used to visit are always there. They never change. But yet it is in my own home in my own country where it changes all the time and I don't recognise it anymore. How ironic, right? For me, one of those buildings that bring a deep sense of loss and longing is actually the old National Library. If you recall, it's that low red brick two-storey building that used to be at the foot of Fort Canning Hill. And it was where I spent a lot of time with my dad um, as a child because we would go there and borrow and browse books each time, you know, after catching a movie at Capitol Theatre. Later, as a student, I also spent a lot of time there doing research, and I actually can still recall the musty smell of the reference section. And even as a young actor, um, I remember hanging out nearby at S11, under those big trees outside the library, and S11 was a kopitiam where you could grab a drink after a show at the substation. The old National Library and the areas around it was always a buzz, you know, day and night with all kinds of people. Young people, students, families. So it was a real affront when it had to be torn down to make way for a tunnel. While I can understand the need to make way for new developments as Singapore grows and progresses, I feel we really need to reconsider more seriously the value of our intangible heritage 
and these markers of our everyday experiences that is also part of our journey as a nation. The National Library may not be a building of architectural interest or, or have deep historical value in terms of our national narrative, but it had sentimental value and memories cherished by so many Singaporeans across multiple generations. So it may not be part of big history, but it was certainly part of small history, our personal histories, and the memories of the everyday that reside in everyday places. So I guess for me, you know, to cut a long story short, I feel that we need to find better ways of engaging and creating dialogue with Singaporeans when it comes to redeveloping our spaces. Because it continues to happen, and it will, you know, in the future. We, we had the same feeling around the National Theatre, the National Stadium, Pearl Bank Apartments, Bukit Brown, Dakota Crescent, Substation, Dover Forest. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are all part of the emotional, connective tissue that link us to each other, that link us back to history and to our city. How will future generations understand and value Singapore's past and where we come from if we don't leave behind some of these more familiar landmarks of our collective memories and journey? <laughs>